is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our One Mom versus the Machine series. And we previously brought you Kathy Hamilton's story of taking down the corrupt board and president of her local community college, and also Marva Collins' story of becoming disillusioned teaching in Chicago's public schools that were failing its students and deciding to take all of her life savings, $5,000, to start her very own school. And now today's feature, which comes to us from our field correspondent, Alex Cortez. This Ohio mom is a Spanish teacher at a public high school. Someone put a nail in my tire three times at school. Okay, now I wasn't where I could prove it. I didn't have film. But the first time a nail was in my tire at school, I didn't even think about it. The second time, within that same fall, it happened. I thought, okay, am I running over something? The third time it happened at school, I went out and my tire was flat. I thought, okay, what, what's going on here? Her name is Jade Hamilton, and she didn't always want to become a teacher. I was very fortunate, um, and it was by serendipity. I met a woman here at Marietta College. I had moved here from Washington, D.C. with my husband, and I just had a new baby. And I had previously worked on Capitol Hill and loved it. So I was moving from being a full-time professional to a full-time mom in a small um, town, and I was I didn't have very many friends, and I, I was struggling to find my identity. And when I met her, she was the new head of the Department of Modern Languages at Marietta College. So what she, after talking to me and finding out that I had traveled, studied abroad, and my dad was in the Foreign Service, and I'd lived in Chile and Argentina, and I'd lived in Brazil and Central America, Nicaragua, Honduras, El Salvador, and then in Africa, and then in Spain. Okay, so she said, you, you, can you teach an adjunct class, which is on a per-class basis? I said to her, I, I'm, I didn't go to school to be a teacher. And she said, you know, many people who go to school to be a teacher are not good teachers. She said, you have all this life experience. Wouldn't you just try and try Jay did, teaching in college while she was getting her master's degree in teaching. And Jade has continued to bring all of her amazing experiences right into the classroom, although it hasn't always exactly been what she was expecting. Many of her students just want to Google the answers, and they don't have a zeal for the actual mastery of the subject. But she tries to break through. I try to do what I call a song and dance. I see myself as a link in the chain. I'm the beginning teacher or the, you know, the secondary school teacher, and hopefully they will, turn it, they will be turned on and take it in college. So I take my responsibility there. I try to be happy. I try to be in a good mood. I try to not, not entertain my kids because I can be hard on them, but I try to get them interested in, oh, wow, oh, I could do this, or, oh, Mrs. Thompson, and they'll come and say, did you see this soccer player, or did you see this music, this band that came out, and this song? Sadly, Jade would find out that not all of her colleagues had this same enthusiasm for her after she asked what she thought was a very basic question about the union that they belonged to, and that did the collective bargaining for their pay packages, which, by the way, 
she was fine with. I started to wonder, what is my $800, $900 a year going toward? Does it take that much money? Do the math and calculate that times all the people. We have, I think, three um, elementary schools, a middle school, and a high school. That's a lot of money to collective bargain. How, how hard is it? How long does that take? And you do it for about a year. You know, I started asking questions and wondering. And wonder she should. If you're a mom like Jade, trying to make ends meet for your family, you got to look at every expense, especially one that's eight to $900 a year. Jade's calculation is that it should cost about $260 a year both for the liability insurance that helps protect teachers in the event of a lawsuit against them and for the collective bargaining. She knows that she can get private liability insurance for less than $200 a year, and the nature of collective bargaining is that it isn't an ongoing yearly cost. Usually they bargain your contract, and it's good for five years, or, you know, it's it's not every single year they're bargaining. Jade isn't anti-union. In fact, she was a full dues-paying member of the union. But the mom and her kept coming across things. It really upset me when, at a certain point, a teacher showed me where the money goes on the national scale. You know, like, so 177 goes straight to the National Education Association. That's the national one. 177 of my dollars. The local union passes along this amount of Jade's dues to this national arm of the union. Well, okay, you're hearing about what kind of salaries they have. Almost 50 people making over $200,000. Then they may have a convention or an event in in Las Vegas, and they they stay in these hotels. I'm like, wait a minute, okay, where is this coming from? Well, you take Jade's 100. And $77 times 124,000 Ohio teachers making the same payment, and you get $21,948,000 from Ohio to the National Union. And by the way, in case you forgot, Ohio's one of only 50 states. In Jade's statewide union, the Ohio Education Association, the OEA, is living quite differently, too. When you find out all the, the list of salaries for the OEA, I, I think there are two, two pages, full pages of salary for the Ohio Education Association, and probably the lowest-paying person makes two or three times what I make as a teacher. So when I started to look at, okay, what's the OEA president make, Near $200,000. Well, in Ohio, a salary of $200,000 is luxury. I mean, you know, you're, you're a doctor, a lawyer, you maybe make that, but not normal people. And when we come back, this not normal mom starts to really dig in. This is Lee Habib, One Mom versus the Machine. Jade Thompson's story here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and we return to our One Mom versus the Machine segment, Jade Thompson's story. And when we had left off, she had talked about how the salary she was seeing for the state union just weren't normal. Well, this not-so-normal mom, she was about to really dig in. Like all things in life, from business to government, normal people closer to home are more accountable. And because of this, they also perform better. Why can't it be a professional organization of people that knows our school that we employ somebody local? Why does it have to be national? And why does my money have to go to the national and then the OEA? The union would respond that state and national folks have unique expertise that not every local union could provide. They quite simply know better. And and it's an argument that has some merit. But sometimes they act like they know better, too. You start getting, during political cycles, magazines from the OEA. Okay, they have a monthly magazine that comes out. And it is, it's right, they they just, sorry to say it this way, cram it right down your throat. They tell you who to vote for. Well, I take offense, don't tell me who to vote for. Whether you're a Republican, a Democrat, or Green Party, none of us want to be told who to vote for, let alone through these means. Who's paying for this magazine? I am. I'm paying the the propaganda that comes my way, and it's a slick magazine. Okay, so I don't want to pay for that. I don't mind paying for collective bargaining. And then, one day, all these political activities became all too personal. I never really got involved, but I didn't make a stand or do anything, and I didn't like it at all. But then what happened was my husband was a city councilman. He decided to run for state representative. When he ran for state representative, um, what the union started doing was sending all these ads out against my husband that were very mocking and political in nature. And um, they were going to my mom's household. My mom was alive at the time. And, you know, in the return box paid for by the campaign for moderate majority, and then in parentheses, OEA, S-E-I-U. Like, okay, wait, the OEA in Columbus? The union that she was part of was taking her money and using it to oppose and mock her very own husband. And of course, without her permission to spend her hard-earned money this way. It was like an epiphany of, are you kidding me? This That's like a major slap in the face. Jade's husband was running as a Republican, but to her, that should have made no difference at all. Um, I wouldn't want a Democratic friend. I wouldn't want anyone to have to go through what I've had to go through, and um, it's just not right. It's not right for them to use your money, your forced dues, in that manner. If a union opposes a spouse of one of their Democratic members, 
They're risking doing so on behalf of a minority of their members. Republicans only make up about 25% of union membership. And if a union opposes a Republican member's spouse, they're also risking doing so on behalf of a minority. Less than 45% of union members identify as Democrats. The union is speaking for all in a way that they don't speak for all. Most membership organizations stick to the issues where the vast majority of their members agree for this reason. For the unions, their way of doing business could be untenable for them and exposes them to further diminishing. Their membership has already dropped in half from 20% of American workers to 10% in just over 30 years. And it doesn't help when you don't respond to your members. So I actually called the OEA president. Her name was Patricia Frost. At the time, she of course wouldn't take my call. And I tried to complain. I said, you know, really, this is, uh, this is ridiculous. I, I have to be in this union, and, you know, the OEA is doing something. I, this is ridiculous. So um, it was a crucible moment for me, though, because before I kind of didn't have a voice. I didn't want to distinguish myself in any uh, pejorative way. So then I started getting, you know, angry. Uh, you won't take my call. I thought, okay, you, you, that's fine, that's fine, I'm fighting back now. So I, I did feel alone for a, a time, and I decided to write a couple letters to the editor, which got picked up by the Columbus Dispatch, fairly nerve-wracking for me, but I thought to myself, if I'm quiet, all these people speak for me, and um, my husband is a really good man, and he does not deserve this, and this is wrong. I was so worried, oh, I'm going to have repercussions at school, but you know what I thought to myself? If you're my friend and and you know who we are, then you'll support me. And because her union stopped supporting her, she decided to stop supporting it. I decided then to be a a fee payer, and I changed my status, so I have to pay still to be in the union to have my collective bargaining. But they give you a certain amount back. Ohio is not a right-to-work state. So if your workplace is unionized and you don't want to be a member of a union, you kind of sort of still have to be. As Jade mentioned, your only option is to become what's called a fee payer, where you have to pay the union for what they say are the cost to represent you in any potential legal matters and to negotiate your contract on your behalf even if you don't want them to. But allegedly, you also no longer have to pay for all the other activities of a union, such as their political lobbying and election efforts, and this would be a good thing. But the reality is, well... If you just look at the OEA and NEA portions of a teacher's dues, a fee payer is forced to pay 97.9% of a regular union member's dues, a difference of only 2.1%. So 
So the Ohio Union, in effect, is saying that only 2.1% of their budget goes to non-representation activities. Hmm. Think that adds up? Whatever the reality is, this puny refund creates a strong disincentive for a teacher to leave a union. Especially when this can be the result. When you start to speak out about it or talk about it, other teachers try to intimidate you. They make you feel like, well, you can't go against the union. You've got to be in the union. Or if you're against the union, you're against public schools or you're against the teachers. Wait a minute. I'm not. I just, I don't want to be, don't you guys see all this stuff going on? Nobody, there are a lot of people who are like cows to the slaughter. They do not want to know. So that intimidation factor is people who are worried that they'll lose their job and they'll have to work with somebody who's very pro-union. And what I realized is if once you start talking about it, people start, they identify you and then they freeze you out. Like they will be walking down the hall in the school and they, you say hello to them as a polite, normal person with people skills and they act like they didn't hear you. I want to be working in a, in a school where I feel like I have colleagues that respect me and we can go to each other and help each other and, you know, cross-curriculum kinds of uh, lessons and those kinds of things. So, uh, you don't, nobody wants to be in an organization where nobody will talk to you, right? Right. And what a mom this is. Again, don't get on the wrong side of a fighter. This is Our American Stories, Jade Thompson's story, and this takes courage, folks. I mean, this is the kind of courage that is hard to exhibit, particularly in small towns, and we broadcast from a small town here in Oxford, Mississippi. And when we come back, we're going to hear the rest of this story, Jade Thompson's story, more after these messages. is Our American Stories, and we return to the final portion of this incredible One Mom versus the Machine story, Jade Thompson's story. And when we left off, Jade was expressing the pain of her fellow teachers not talking to her in the hallways because she simply decided to leave the union. Despite this, Jade still chose to opt out of the union and talk to her fellow teachers but becoming a fee payer was easier said than done. When you opt out, you have a very small window every single year that you have to do. You're opting out. You get a packet in the mail from the OEA, 
And um, of course, it comes at Christmas time when you are so busy. And what people, I didn't even look for that. I didn't even know what that package was. So it's this packet, and on the third or fourth page are the instructions for how to how to opt out and how to be a fee payer. You have to get it postmarked by January 15th, and so you know you're good to be a fee payer for one year. So you have a very short, small window. A lot of teachers don't even know about it, and they don't make it really easy to figure out how to do it. You have to look for it. So I think on this year. There were instructions on page three, and then there was another. You had to go into like page fifteen to. So, um, opting out is a chore. The union ought to ask you. It ought to be competitive. It ought to ask you. Do you want to be a member? And are we doing a good job? In fact, the state of Wisconsin in 2011 changed their structure so that individuals have the free choice of whether to opt into the union in the first place so that you don't have to opt out. And this really is how every other membership organization in America works. We decide whether to opt in to attend a certain church, the Lions Club, the Chamber of Commerce, or none of them at all. And when you decide not to become a member of these organizations, typically this doesn't happen. Someone put a nail in my tire three times at school. Tragically, the intimidation didn't stop at the grown-up level. My son's math teacher, she, in my son's math class, made a point. And my son was, you know, in high school, he didn't really want to be called out. He didn't want people to know his dad was the representative. And she made several references in class about my husband. Oh, and she said, you know, my son's name, and this is your dad, or whatever. Well, he was completely mortified. The health teacher did that, and so did the math teacher. And um, I had to go to our principal and have a meeting with them and say, you know, you can't do that. You, can't, you absolutely cannot call my husband's name in your class in your math class or your health class and um, embarrass my son because he he's not a political figure and he doesn't deserve that. That's crossing a line. If you're a teacher of English, a teacher of math, teacher of Spanish, stick on your subject. Teach your subject as best you can. You shouldn't be up there teaching your politics. So uh, I guess in English you could say, well, you know, you got to write a persuasion paper. But don't you feel intimidated if you know your teacher is supporting the Democrat and you want to support the Repu- maybe your parents are Republican? And, you know, teachers this year even have gotten in trouble for uh, saying political things after the election. And um, <clears throat> they don't get fired, though. And they don't get I, I just don't want my kids to be subject to that. I just want them to have um, anonymity and fairness. And so... That's been that's been a little bit touchy. I will be glad when my youngest graduates. So we'll see. And through all of this, Jade wasn't going to let the intimidation stop her. This mom sued them. About that time, I reached out to the National Right to Work Foundation. They they actually came to talk to me in person. 
and asked me if I wanted to be a part of a lawsuit. It was called Saxton versus the OEA, and I got to meet about 20 other teachers who were also a part of this lawsuit. Well, this is my first time to be with other people who I didn't feel so alone. They knew they knew that they were finding out the same kinds of things that I was finding out and sort of sticking their necks out. And that was empowering. Their lawsuit challenged the amount that the union was forcibly charging fee payers like them. These teachers believed that the refund amount off of the standard union dues should have been higher. That the union was unconstitutionally charging them for non-representation activities that they can't charge them for, such as public relations, union organizing, and lobbying. These seemingly lowly teachers who took on an all-powerful union in a three-year epic fight turned out to be right. And won. The Thaxton got, uh, I think, as a fee payer before, you got $105 back. Now you get 235 or around there. Um, so it doubled. That was the change that the union agreed to in a settlement. And the settlement talks were something else. It was, um, it was an education in itself watching the OEA lawyers argue. And they wanted us to, um, they actually approached, the OEA lawyers approached our, the any the National Right to Work lawyers and said, Oh, just just let's let's bargain this deal for a couple of years and and you know we'll see you back in court and you'll get paid again and they were kind of trying to cut a deal under the under the table but none of those teachers were in it for money they were all in it to have change and so every single one of us said we don't want it to just be effective for two years or four years we want it to be we're doing this for teachers that can't speak out or won't speak out people going forward. And so um, we did get it that was 30 years effective. And it was for everyone who wants to be a fee payer, past, present, and future. Not just for the plaintiffs, as the unions will often try to limit it to. They weren't able to this time. And although Jade has achieved something significant, and more importantly, can sleep easy at night knowing that she followed her conscience, this burden that's been thrust upon her has been a gigantic waste of her time and emotional energy at the end of the day, given her true mission in life. I want to teach. I don't want to get involved in this huge ordeal. I just want to teach, and I enjoy my job, and I'm very grateful for my job, and I don't want to make anybody mad, I want to be on a team. Is that too much to ask? Reporting for Our American Stories, I'm Alex Cortez. And great job on that piece, Alex. I just want to teach. And Jade also said, opting out of the union is a chore. I mean, heck, 
We have to opt in to email, for goodness sake. And last but not least, the bullying point. We hear about it in schools all the time, working on bullying, anti-bullying this, anti-bullying that. But this one teacher went up against her union, and they just bullied her, and bullied her nonstop. God bless Jade Thompson, one mom versus the machine. Don't get in the way of these moms, and don't bully them, because they're coming right back at you. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Jade Thompson's Story. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we bring you stories about music, sports, marriage, work, history, every sphere of American life. And we especially love stories about human freedom and what happens when it's trampled and when it's allowed to flourish. And National Review's Jay Nordlinger wrote just such a story, and it was fantastic. And so we asked him to record it for us. Here's Jay. Article 39 of the Cuban Constitution states the following. Artistic creativity is free as long as its content is not contrary to the revolution. Danilo Maldonado Machado, also known as El Sexto, doesn't obey. He's a Cuban street artist and human rights activist. He has been in and out of prison many times. In 2014... He took two pigs and painted names on them, Fidel and Raul. He was referring to his country's brother dictators, of course. Fidel has since died. Raul is in charge. When he goes, he may well be succeeded by his son, Alejandro. Maldonado had been inspired by Animal Farm. Orwell's novella of 1945. Into the day when pigs own and operate farms everywhere! Obviously, his pigs routine earned him a prison sentence. Maldonado is the very image of the street artist rebel. Tall and thin, funky haircut, tattoos, jewelry, the works. He was born on April 1st, 1983. Like all Cubans, Danilo was propagandized as soon as he reached school age. He and his classmates chanted slogans such as, We will be like Che, meaning Che Guevara, of course. When they learned to read, they didn't see sentences like, See, spot, run. They saw, Fidel is in the plaza, or Fidel is happy. And of course... TV, radio, and newspapers conveyed hardly anything but propaganda. Danilo liked to draw, and something strange happened when he was nine. He drew a picture of Fidel Castro in his army fatigues, but with a monkey head. When his mother saw it, she was horrified. She took it from him, threw it away, 
and admonished him never to draw anything like that again. The child was taken aback. His mother had always liked his drawings before. Why was she so afraid of this one simple drawing? Her son told me, that started a little revolution in my mind. When he was 18, he was conscripted into the military, like everyone else. On the base, he saw things he had never seen before. Goods, supplies, you know, stuff. He stole some of it. For this, he was sentenced to six years in prison. He served three. When he got out, he had an urge to satirize, to satirize every government campaign, to puncture the atmosphere of fear and propaganda. That's how he got his nickname, El Sexto. The government was hailing the Cuban Five, as they're known, a group of five spies in the United States. The government was constantly celebrating these men as heroes. So Maldonado, tongue-in-cheek, started calling himself El Sexto, meaning the Sixth. He also spray-painted graffiti in the capital city, Havana, signing them with his new nickname. In one instance, he painted this statement, Peace, Love, Without Fear. This caused a buzz. Fear is the ruling emotion in Cuba, as in police states everywhere. On a bus, Maldonado overheard people talking about him. Who is El Sexto, they said. Also, he overheard police talking about him. They were vowing to get these guys, these guys who were waging this graffiti campaign. They thought that El Sexto had to be more than one person. For years, Maldonado has had support from ordinary people, usually stated in whispers. He has support even among policemen, but most of the agents do their job, which includes harassing Maldonado, keeping him out of public spaces, and confiscating his property. Once, Maldonado wore a t-shirt with the image of Laura Poyan on it. She was the leader of the Ladies in White, the human rights group in Cuba. She died in 2011 under suspicious circumstances. The police ripped the shirt off Maldonado. They also took away his art materials. So, as he puts it, he used the one medium left to him, his body. He acquired a tattoo of Poyan and of Oswaldo Paya, another democracy leader in Cuba, killed by the regime in 2011. Maldonado, like the people painted on his body, is one of those irrepressible dissidents. Today, the United States of America is changing its relationship with the people of Cuba. In December 2014, President Obama announced his opening to Cuba. If international media were going to be paying more attention to Cuba, Maldonado thought it was a good time for an imaginative, daring performance. His inspiration was Animal Farm. Read it to me. Which depicts a place where, quote, All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. More equal than others? Ever since it was written, people trapped in totalitarian societies have been amazed by Animal Farm, by its accuracy above all. In Cuba, Maldonado took his two pigs, females as it happened, and gave them those famous names, Fidel and Raul. His plan was to take them to Central Park in Havana and put on a show. Rebellion en la Granja, or Rebellion on the Farm, which is how Orwell's novella is known in Spanish. 
Maldonado knew he would be arrested and imprisoned. His aim was to show the world that freedom of expression in Cuba was denied. He never made it to the park. They arrested him on the way. Maldonado was charged with disorderly conduct, but he was never given a trial. He was sentenced to three years. Three years for two pigs, as his supporters put it. The prison was Valle Grande, where he was confined with common criminals as dissidents are in Cuba. Amnesty International declared Maldonado a prisoner of conscience. There came a time when the prisoners did not have water, and that led Maldonado to stage a hunger strike. He also had this thought. It was my activism that got me in here, and it will be activism that gets me out. He considered his hunger strike a kind of performance art. He went without food for 24 days. Was he prepared to die? Yes, he says, although he did not think it would come to that. He figured he was too well known for the regime to let die. The regime wouldn't want the publicity. Maldonado's hunger strike garnered international attention and led to international pressure on the Castro dictatorship. They relented, releasing Maldonado on October 20th, 2015. His jailers had some parting words for him. Stay out of trouble. He refuses. He wants to, quote, stretch the limits of what's possible. Why? He answered the way dissidents usually do when I asked them this question. He said, I don't know. In the past, Maldonado tried to live a normal life, but found he couldn't. He must strike little artistic blows against the dictatorship, or try to. His goal is to, quote, break the pattern of brainwashing in people. He wants to counter the government's incessant propaganda. He says he thinks like a publicist. What can I do to catch people's attention and wake them up a little? He says that communism is like slavery, quote, People are told to be grateful for what little they're given by their masters. They're also told that life would be wretched for them elsewhere or under a different system. I asked him, why do they let you travel? He said, I don't know. And then with a grin, maybe they think I'll never come back. Maldonado was more trouble to them at home than abroad. Whatever the dangers in Cuba, he has no desire to go into exile because, quote, I want to be part of change in Cuba. I see America and the American dream, and I want to implant that spirit in Cuba to have a Cuban dream, which is freedom. I asked him a standard question. Is there something you wish people could know, especially outsiders, foreigners? He had an immediate answer. Che Guevara was a murderer. He wasn't a hero. Also, Raul and Fidel are murderers, not legitimate authorities, not legitimate heads of state. They're there by force, not by the will of the people. Maldonado flew from Havana to Paris. Sitting next to him was a man wearing a Che shirt, a foreigner, probably a Frenchman. Maldonado wanted to explain to the man about Guevara, but they did not have a language in common. Maldonado says he can excuse Cubans who wear Che shirts. They've been propagandized all their lives. He has a much harder time excusing men and women from free societies. Before he and I left each other, I told El Sexto that I considered him something of a miracle. When I was growing up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, the cool kids like him, 
the artists and rebels with funky hair, tattoos, jewelry, and so on. They wore K-shirts. They were pro-Castro. And here, the coolest kid on the block is El Sexto, who is anti-Castro, pro-democracy, anti-Che. I said to him, I'm so glad you exist. He grinned. And we're grinning here, almost ear to ear, everyone in the studio. And thanks so much for that writing, Jay. And what a story. And what an American story, bringing American values of freedom and love to a place, well, run by dictators for the last half century, even more. This is Lee Habib, El Sexto's story, here on Our American Story. Habib and this is Our American Stories and we love to bring you stories about music, sports history, work, marriage and every sphere of American life. We tell you good stories redeeming stories, uplifting stories and tough stories too and today we hear from Jeff Katz he's a radio host in Richmond, Virginia and he's also a columnist for the Boston Herald And here he shares his deeply personal story about his teenage daughter, Julia, who has what doctors call global developmental delays and disabilities. And all of that means is that she functions physically and mentally at the level of a toddler. Here's Jeff reading a note that he wrote to his daughter. Dear Julia, I'm writing you this note on March the 7th, 2018. Today is the day that you turn 15 years old. It's an interesting day for me and for mom, but it's another day for you. You're not like other kids, my sweet. You've never made a big deal of your birthday. You've never asked us for any type of a special gift. Not for your birthday, not for Hanukkah, not for Christmas. You've treated each and every day in the same way. Mom will wake you up and you'll have a smile on your face when you see her. She'll play some of your music and you'll smile even more. You may laugh or giggle or squeal, but there will not be any words. You won't complain about having to go to school. You won't be happy to hear that it is a snow day. You won't celebrate the fact that today is 15 years since you were born. Most 15-year-old girls would be thinking about clothing, college, or a car. By 15, many dads have already had to warn their daughters about some dopey boy. But today, you'll watch your favorite episode of Jack's Big Music Show, enjoy your cereal, and be on the lookout for cookies wherever you can find them. Mom and I know that you will be with us as long as we're alive. But we worry about what happens after we're gone. You have two wonderful brothers, and I pray every day that we have raised them well enough to know that they will need to look after you someday. You may be our middle child, but you'll always be the baby. Even as you get older, according to the calendar, as Mom told me yesterday, 
you are timeless. You'll always be my pipsqueak, despite the fact that the years are flying by. No, we're not exploring potential careers or making plans for your wedding. We're still hoping that we'll be able to help you move from diapers to the potty someday. You live today the same way you did when you were about 18 months old. You don't speak, and you only recognize a few words, but oh, the words that you know. Kisses and cookies. No matter how filled up you are, there's always room for a cookie or two. You don't understand when I ask you how your day was, but you become laser beam focused when you hear the crinkle of the wrapper on a package of something sweet. No matter how sweet that candy, it's still eclipsed by your genuinely sweet smile. So many people live their lives asking for things, demanding things, accumulating things. Most people never take the time to stop and savor a piece of cake or breathe deeply to appreciate a gentle breeze like you do. I hear people in this world use horrible, insulting language to describe kids like you, and I want to shake them and yell at them. Some mock disabled kiddos like you, and I feel like crying. You don't understand their words, but I do. Sometimes I really wish I did not. We never thought you would crawl, let alone walk, but you showed us. Your situation and challenges and disabilities have caused me to question my belief in God on some days and have served to strengthen it on others. You don't speak, but somehow you are able to brighten my days in ways that I never imagined. Without a single solitary word, you've made me a better man and touched countless people. Hearing you cry ties my stomach into knots, but your giggle is truly the happiest sound that I have ever heard. I know you'll never read this, nor would you understand this if I were to read it to you. So let me just say, kisses and cookies, Jules Bagools. I tell you today what I have told you on every March the 7th since 2003. Daddy loves you more than you will ever know. And thank you for that reading, Jeff. You've made me a better man, he wrote. Your giggle is the happiest sound I've ever heard. On Julia's unexpectedly learning how to walk, Jeff told the Boston Herald that, quote, it was one of the proudest days of my life, one of the happiest days of my life. But I also have to tell you, it's a terrifying situation because Julia is like a toddler. She has no real understanding of, oh, the stove is hot, or I could fall here or trip you there. We're thrilled that she's trying to explore on her own a little bit, and we're terrified at the same time. And this is true for all of us parents, but even more so for Jeff and his bride. Jeff has said that it's tough to realize that he'll never get to embarrass Julia by dancing with her at her wedding. But, quote, she's the best thing that's ever happened to me. End quote. Last but not least, he said these words, quote, She's never spoken a word. She's never said a word to anybody. But she's touched more people in her 15 years on this earth than I ever have. Her joy is pure. To me, she's like the face of God. She's the essence of good, and she shares her joy with everybody. And to everyone out there who's in a similar situation, we share these thoughts. Share them to us. Share them with us. 
here at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Jeff Katz's story, his daughter Julia's, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, where we love to tell stories about everything. And right now we're going to take you into the world of the NHL hockey enforcer. Players whose job it is to deter and respond to a dirty or violent play by opposing players. Simply said, this is a story about fighting in hockey. Here's Greg Hengler. All right, this song's about hockey. Fighting in hockey is not just tolerated, it's promoted, and it has been since the beginning. When legendary brawler Eddie Shore and his Boston Bruins played the Rangers at Madison Square Garden in 1925, wanted dead or alive posters were plastered all over the streets of New York with the image of Shore, or old blood and guts as he was known on them. Shore was one of the toughest, meanest hombres ever to lace him up. Included on his list of career injuries are nearly 1,000 stitches, 14 broken noses, 12 broken collarbones, and 5 broken jaws, not to mention a broken back and hip. It was written in 1939 of Shore, for 20 years, man and boy, this evil fellow has developed the role of villain to such an extent that professional wrestlers gnash their teeth with envy. Not much has changed since the days of Eddie Shore's old-time hockey. Good evening and thanks for joining us. It is one of the most disgusting, brutal parts of NHL hockey. They are the most feared players in the NHL, whose role isn't scoring goals, it's knocking out the opponent. They're enforcers, scouted, drafted, and put on the ice for one thing, to fight. Let's drop the puck on this story with opening remarks from one of the greatest enforcers in NHL history, Boston native Chris Knuckles Nylon. You know, probably 18,999 people in the stands out of the 19,000 at one time or another, wherever they work, probably wanted to punch someone in the mouth. Whether it's their boss, someone they work with, somebody in competition with them. 
they never get to do it. But they like to see someone else do it. I still remember I was probably 12 or 13. We were at one of the stables and there was a couple of guys. It's like, oh, well, what are you going to do? You're going to be a vet like your dad? And, you know, being the 13-year-old still dreamer, I was like, no, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play in the NHL. It's all you think about your whole life is playing in the NHL. There was a point that I realized that my skill set that I had, it was only going to take me so far. Every league I went into, I was, I was always a little bit slower than most players, and I'd establish myself some way to stick in the league. Then I finally looked in the mirror and I was like, God, it's me. It's, it's my role. <laughs> so what is it about hockey that lends itself to fighting? And why does this not happen in equally violent sports such as football, rugby, and lacrosse? Here's hockey writer Stan Fischler. If you trace the roots of hockey, it was a game that really grew up in a frontier atmosphere where there wasn't much policing. So if you got a referee and he misses a call and somebody gets whacked in the head, you're not going to dial 911 and wait for a cop to arrive. You're going to whack the guy back. And when one whack leads to another whack, then the sticks drop and then the fight happens. Here's former Boston Bruin, Bob Sweeney. Bruins, uh, in their heyday, the late 60s, early uh, 70s, really transformed hockey. Here's the Boston Herald's John Fitzgerald. Anybody ever put a glove on Bobby Orr? <laughs> wow. Orr and Ballon Here's hockey writer Ross Bernstein. As things would go on, of course, you saw the Broad Street Bullies, the Philadelphia Flyers, who won cups in the, a pair of cups in the early 70s by using fighting as a tactic. Teams would get what they called the Philly flu, where guys would come down with mystery ailments the night before they had to play the Flyers. Uh, coach, I don't feel good. I'm sick. Yeah, because you don't want to lose any teeth tomorrow when you got to go against Schultz and Moose DuPont and all those other thugs. They would carry a tough guy in every line, and they would beat the crap out of you in every scrum. We're going to have a Donnybrook right down below The Broad Street Bullies created an arms race. Two years through the league, two championships, and everyone said, oh, this is how it's done? Everybody started finding the toughest dudes they could find, from Medicine Hat to Moncton to Moose Jaw, you name it. If you were tough and you could face one of those guys, you became a necessity. The enforcers became necessary. The enforcers became necessary not only for the team's success, but also for allowing the most skilled players to do their thing. Here's former NHL enforcer Lyndon Byers. Over the blue line. Manning gets it again and brings it right back in for Buffalo. Here's Manning walking in on goal. He scores! The NHL is a game. It's beautiful. It's elegant. But it can be nasty. And if you don't have people that hold other guys accountable, they're going to take liberties because they can. It's the only game in which you can't run out of bounds. And so there's a constant um, presence of people who would knock these finesse players off their pins. And you need guys to create room for those players. Nice move, another nice move! Oh, score! What a goal! Left point, over to Blake. Blake, he's in the Gretzky. Gretzky scores! What a shot! 
If there wasn't a Marty McSoley, there wouldn't have been a Wayne Gretzky. McSorley allowed Gretzky to be Gretzky. That's what a tough guy does. Here's Marty McSorley. There was one night Doug Evans was playing for Winnipeg, and he speared Gretz, and it was probably the third or fourth time he tried to take liberties with Wayne Gretzky. And what I did is I hung down in their end, and I cross-checked him very, very hard, right across the chest, down on the ice. And when he was on the ice, I leaned down, and I really hit him hard, almost to the point where it's like a computer screen when the light goes up. Now, I got four games for it, but that can't happen on my watch. Here's Sports Illustrated's Michael Farber on what it's like being an enforcer. For a lot of fighters, there's a sinking feeling in their stomach because they know what faces them. It's like sitting in classroom all day, knowing when the bell rings, 3 o'clock. You've got to go fight the toughest kid in the school on the playground, and everyone's going to be watching. Here's the greatest enforcer of all hockey enforcers, Bob Probert. The night before, it was tough sleeping the night before a game and knowing uh, that there was a battle coming. Here's Todd Ewan. I was never scared about being in a fight. I was scared about losing a fight. You lose one fight and then you lose two and they lose confidence in you, my career was over. Here's Terry O'Reilly. You start out as a young frisky kid challenging all these famous scrappers and you blink and there you are, you're... 10, 12 years into the league, you've had your shoulder fixed two or three times, you've broken your hand a couple of times, there's a 20-year-old kid, and he's just foaming at the mouth when he looks at you, he wants to take you down. Although seen as a bad guy, the enforcer is a vigilante seeking to restore order and impart justice. Here's former referee Ron Asseltine and some of the NHL's finest enforcers defending their roles on the ice. Words at the edge of the circle, and they dropped the mitts right away. The refs have the ultimate control on what not gets called, but there's just some stuff that that doesn't get called. It's not going to that. It's up to the enforcer to take care of. If something happens during the game, someone makes a cheap shot or runs your goalie, you know, a blindside hit, an elbow, a slash the stick in the face, the cross check to the side of the neck, the slew footing where a guy gets his feet knocked out from underneath him and slams his back of his head on the ice. Those are the types of penalties that can result in, in mayhem, you know, and if, especially if they're missed. Because what's going to happen is if the players feel that we're not out there protecting them, then they're going to start to protect themselves. You're accountable no matter what you do. If you're going to sit there and spear someone and think that there's going to be no retribution or you're not going to have to answer the bell, you got another thing coming. I'll take that one guy and just use you know, his whole team as an example and just say, that one guy created this for every single one of you. So now you're all on my radar. Are they going to? And yes, they are. If I can't get you, I'm going to go to your best player and say, I'm going to break your leg because of him. And then they go, really? Really? And when we come back, more on hockey enforcers fighting for a dream... This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we're talking about hockey's enforcers here. And for anybody who loves the sport, well, you're loving this. And for any of you who don't and just sort of have any casual acquaintance with the sport, which I did, I went to a few Ranger games when I lived in New York, but I always wondered, why all the fights and who are these guys? Well, let's return to the storytelling and to Greg Hengler. Here we are talking about and continuing the story about hockey's enforcers. Some don't buy the rationale to have enforcers. Here's Dr. Charles Tater, neurosurgeon, concussion, and brain injury expert. I, I don't buy it. I, I just don't feel that there's support for that theory. I think that if you follow the rules of the game, if the referee is enforcing the rules, if the league is enforcing the rules, you don't need enforcers to be the policeman for the league. The argument just doesn't hold. But sometimes one expert's opinion clashes with reality. Here's criminologist Dr. Victoria Silverwood and enforcer Derek Boogeyman Bugard. Statistics can't really tell you something because there's no control group. You know, there's no way of really analyzing this. But some of the players that I interviewed um, played in various European mainland teams where there's no fighting allowed. And then they've also played in the UK where it's very similar to North American style. They've explained to me that they actually think there's a lot more cheap shots going on in the leagues without an enforcer. You hear about guys, you know, North American players coming back for the summer and they just say it's a whole different game over there where, you know, guys aren't afraid to use their sticks, you know what I mean? Just because they don't, guys don't fight over there. You speak to skill players perhaps who've played in different teams and will say that they can relax a little bit more when there is an enforcer on the ice. Here's NHL All-Star Brett Hull. I'm just going to tell you right now, Brett Hull would not be the same player uh, that he was without... Guys like Kelly Chase and Tony Twist having his back. I can tell you that right now. Hockey's a chess game, and Wayne Gretzky was the grandmaster. But without enforcers, he wouldn't have had the head to think four plays ahead. You look at the greats and stuff like that, like even Gretzky. I mean, he had Semenko, and he was a madman. Could you imagine taking Semenko, McClellan, and McSorley away from the Oilers? What do you think Gretzky would be? What do you think his head would be? Wayne Gretzky was a skinny 18-year-old, 19-year-old coming up, and people thought, even with WHA, he's going to get killed. I believe everyone was in accord that Wayne Gretzky should not be injured by some person uh, that didn't have the same ability as, as he did. A lot of times he'd have his back to you, and if you really wanted to just put him out of the game, it was there. One, I wouldn't do that to a guy. That's just not my personality. And I guess the other one might be that I would have to deal with the likes of, of Dave Semenko, Mark Messier, uh, Kevin McClellan, God knows how many other guys, because every one of the guys would have been, you know, wanting to hurt you. I mean, it wasn't really what I wanted to look forward to every time I played the Edmonton Oilers. Here's Semenko. I think sometimes I get more credit than I deserve for his career. Because he was a great, you know, the greatest player that ever played. Not only were they good enough to play on the ice with Wayne Gretzky, they were also good enough that he didn't want to go anywhere without them. 
So when Wayne Gretzky was traded to the Kings, Marty McSorley was part of the deal. Not because the Kings said, oh, please give us Marty McSorley, but because Wayne Gretzky said, I'm not going anywhere without Marty McSorley. Here's Marty McSorley. If Wayne Gretzky, nothing was to happen every time somebody hit him clean, people would have been looking to hit him clean three or four times every shift all year long. How is he ever going to stay healthy? If I don't go by the other team's bench and say, fellas, that's enough. That's enough. I'm not putting up with it. Fighting has been a part of the game since its inception. In fact, the first professional hockey game ever ended in a fight. Although the term enforcer didn't come into the league until the 1970s, players were protecting players all the way back into the 20s. But the start of the arms race began with Ed Snyder's 1967 expansion team nicknamed the Broad Street Bullies. The Broad Street Bullies, the Philadelphia Flyers, were the ones that started this whole thing with intimidation and fighting. Broad Street Bullies were created because of the St. Louis Blues. They had taken advantage of them and, and their owner had said, this isn't gonna happen anymore. Mr. Snyder, the owner said, you know, if we can't find all these superstars, these great skaters right away, but we can certainly find guys who can beat other guys up. Because I do not want to see a Flyers team intimidated ever again. Teams in those days had, you know, you know, one or two tough guys that could duke it, that could take care of the Flyers had like a seven of them. We'd go into cities and, you know, hot, seriously, headlines. Hide the women and children, here come the animals. I mean, at one point, my mother read, you know, that said Dave Schultz should be kicked out of the league. The league hated him. You know, everybody hated him. The only people that loved him were Philadelphia and, and Ed Snyder. They went out there with that mentality that they were just going to beat the shit out of anyone who stepped on the ice with them. And they did it, and they won. That advantage of that intimidation really helped them. At that time, they could do that and get away with it. What they did was make teams copy it. That sort of dovetailed right into the 80s as well. Like, even in the Wayne Gretzky era, in that high-flying 80s era, I mean, the Ranger-Islander games would take three and a half hours. The Battle of Alberta would take three and a half hours. Do I even need to mention what Montreal and Quebec would do? Like, of those six teams, probably half the players should have been in prison for what happened on the ice uh, during some of those games. So there was, like, that, that, that uber-violence through the 80s as well. Like anything, it, it, uh, it became a culture developed around it, um, for better and for worse. The evolution of training for enforcers has become much more skill-specific. Once upon a time, you just had to be tough and throw a lot of punches really quickly. Now NHL enforcers are training in boxing, wrestling, judo, jiu-jitsu, and more. Enforcer Scott Parker even adopted medieval workouts into his off-season training. I had some issues with the hands and, you know, I almost had the palm olive hands, like dishwasher's hands, you know, just soft. And I used to wrap my hands with these types of chains and then just go around and just whack trees and just try to beat my knuckles up as much as I possibly could. Then they start callousing it up and then you make them like leather. They can take a lot more abuse when you use them as hammers on people's faces. Recently, the NHL has cracked down dramatically on fighting, and many fans have soured on what they now call an overly regulated game. 
As predicted, the NHL now resembles the European style of play that results in more injuries. The NHL's top players are paying the price. I watch the game now. Sidney Crosby has been injured more times from hits and head injuries and knees in one year than Goretzky in a career. And when we come back, the final installment of this fascinating look at this unique game. Again, all this fighting doesn't happen in football. It does not happen in lacrosse, two other fairly violent sports. But in hockey, we're learning enforcers matter, their stories, their lives. The story of hockey in America, here on Our American Stories, continues after these messages. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We continue with this story about hockey's enforcers. Who are they? Why are they there? And why do some people think they need to be there? Let's continue with the story. I always compare hockey to life and business. It's very similar. If someone can get away with something in life or business, they're going to get away with it. Same with in hockey. If you penalize a player or even suspend a player, um, you might hurt that person in, in the pocketbook or hurt that person's team. But uh, if you're actually going to hurt the person, it's a way bigger deterrent than those other two things. Some people might not want to hear that, but uh, it is the major, major deterrent, and it's the ultimate deterrent. You can tell me till you're blue in the face that discipline and fining guys is going to work. Well, I already knew what the fine was for running Steve Eiserman in Detroit if I did it. It was Bob Probert and Joe Koser, and I didn't do it. I didn't do it in Edmonton. I didn't run at Wayne Gretzky in L.A. I didn't let guys on my team run at a great player because I was going to be a guy that inevitably was going to pay the price. And that was former NHL enforcer Kelly Chase. As enforcers, the toughest part of fighting is when they're not fighting. The enforcers in hockey have the toughest job in all of sport. The emotional part takes a toll more than the physical part. Going home and, and seeing your kids and having you know a pregame meal and a nap, thinking about this the whole day. 
I, I couldn't imagine anything harder than, you know, to, to wonder who you're going to fight or if you're going to have to fight at all. You're a kid, you know, the playground fight all lined up for you after school and you got to wait from lunchtime till 3.30 for that bell to ring. That's how it feels. Right up to the moment of the fight, your heart is beating right through your jersey and the longer you sit, the worse it gets. As soon as you grab on and you're engaged in that fight, all that goes out the window. Everything that you've thought of, everything that's surrounding you, it, it just goes out the window and you don't hear anything. It's the most bizarre thing. I can't really hear anything. Like it's, you know, it's like the silence comes over. I don't think that thought of that fight ever goes away until it happens. And then once it does, you're thinking about the next one. So it's, uh, it's a constant uh, struggle and balancing emotions and, and, and energy the right way. It's a lot more emotional and uh, wearing on, uh, on that player, on those people, than what people uh, think of it as. The fight's also take an emotional toll on family members, the wives especially. Here's Megan Westgarth and husband Kevin. It's scary when you're kind of watching the fight and then you see, you know, the ref immediately kind of over him, motioning for medical staff to come onto the ice. I remember seeing my wife first after and it was basically like, I, like I'm so sorry. Just a feeling to know that I'd gotten beat and to know that, you know, the people that care about me most, like, had to see it. I would definitely say that that was one of the tougher things that being the wife of an enforcer that I've had to go through with him is just watching him go through that. Mark LaFord spent 14 years as an enforcer in the NHL, but after being drafted, it didn't take long for him to regret his role as a tough guy. Once I got to about 20, then I started, then it dawned on me, I, I went, hmm, I'm going to have to, if I do this, I'm going to have to do this for the next 10, 15 years, every single day. It's no life. I'm older now, my career's done, so I can actually tell the truth. I've never met a guy who's ever liked to fight. If you, uh, if you get a chance, go to some NHL teams and sit down alone, and uh, if they're anonymous, they'll tell you the truth. But if they know their names are going to be used, they can't say they, they hate fighting, they'll lose their jobs. But I've never met a guy one-on-one -on -one when uh, the game wasn't around that enjoyed fighting. The enforcer stereotype is that they're goons. This guy is a goon. If you haven't seen the movie, you don't have to bother. This is a goon. It's Scott Parker with that goatee, Steve Conroy. It looks like he's just been released on a weekend <laughs> furlough. Looks like he could own a Harley and a leather jacket and everything else. Calling a hockey player a goon implies that the player has no ability to think or put the puck in the net. Behavior expert Howard Bloom strongly disagrees. Is there a virtue that's overlooked by those who look at hockey? You bet. But you don't know it until you step into the dressing room and interview one of these guys. You think that this guy is a monster. You think he has no compunctions about breaking arms, breaking legs, smashing out teeth. You think he's merciless, that, that he should be exterminated. He's a cockroach in the game. And then you sit down with him and discover that he has the most magnificent set of ethics and morals you have ever seen in your life. In pursuing the question of the enforcer, you're pursuing the question of what it is to be human. What does the enforcer call on? Profound loyalty. Loyalty so deep that he's willing to risk his own structure, his own body, his own bones, his own teeth, his own brain, 
on behalf of protecting people he deeply loves, the enforcer is the most ethical and moral member of the tribe because he is willing to undergo such incredible sacrifice. That's looking at it from the inside of the group. Looking at it from the outside of the group, the enforcer is the ultimate enemy, the super bad guy, and must be eliminated. But that's because you and I are looking at it from the point of view of another group. If we were looking at it from within the group that the enforcer defends, we would love the enforcer because the enforcer loves every single one of us so much. He is willing to give his life for us. And within the DNA of an enforcer's moral compass lies what is called the code. The code is the fighter's etiquette. Here's what it sounds like before fighting NHL heavyweight champ enforcer and, as you will hear, all-around nice guy, George LaRock. You want to? Okay. Squirrel? Okay, good luck, man. Let's go, he says. That's unbelievable. Hockey's a strange mixture of grace and disgrace, depending on your morals and ethics. That is where the code comes in, to protect and serve no matter what. The code is an unwritten set of rules, the Bible of hockey sportsmanship, if you will, that has been handed down from generation to generation. How does etiquette come out of the chaos of hockey. It's got to sound so odd and just crazy to be so civil when you're, you know, being so violent. The first one that comes to mind is that, you know, when a player goes down to the ice, you try not to punch their head through the ice. You never jumped somebody from behind. You never sucker punched anybody. No biting, no eye gouging, uh, simple things like that. If you know the opponent's uh, injured where he can't fight, out of respect, you just kind of like let him be. Or if that guy had just gotten called up, instead of coming up and whacking you, spearing you, says, hey, you know, if I don't do it tonight, then I'm going to get sent down. And you're like, I got you, kid. There's many a times that uh, a, a heavyweight would come over and say, we're going to go now. And I'd say, how about the start of next period? I, I'm just at the end of the shift. I'm done. And you're the biggest guy on the team right now, and I'd rather be ready. So we'll be fighting in the second period, not right now. Okay, sounds good. Sometimes even before the lines are getting, you're tapping each other on the back and saying good fight, and you skate off. And there's been an, a number of times where I've, you know, got punched in the face, punched people in the face, and later that night have been had a beer with them. It's almost like two warriors sort of looking, looking back at their careers and saying, hey, you know what, we made it out the other side, and forever they'll have this sort of unspoken bond. The bond that enforcers share is deep and is consistent throughout generations of hockey players. The old school enforcers like Dave the Hammer Schultz to recent guys like Brian McGratton and Scott Parker. Although they may agree with Mark LaForge that they did not like to fight, the privilege of playing in the NHL and being able to fulfill that childhood dream was worth the affliction. If someone told me, if you go out and you fight 200 plus times and you're going to be beat up, your shoulders are going to be surgically repaired, you're going to break your nose, your knuckles, but in the end of the day, you're going to play a game in the NHL. Easy. 
Wouldn't do it any other way. I wouldn't change a thing. I got to play in the NHL for 10 years. And that's pretty cool for me. If I could turn back time, I'd put skates on right now and go. I, I, I'd do it. I loved it. If you could, would you do it all over again? Oh. <sighs> With a little more fire. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And that's what we try and do here, take you everywhere that you can't get to yourself. And uh, a little bit more of an explanation of why there's so much fighting in hockey. There's less now than there used to be, more rules, more enforcement. But we wanted to hear from the fighters themselves. Out of the way, unvarnished, our opinions out of it. No one really cares about our opinions anyway. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. These enforcer stories. <laughs> 